morning. Uh, it's good to be back with you this Lord's Day, and it's been a while uh, since I've been able to, to be with you in our study of uh, Mark's Gospel. And so we're going to continue our study there. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 4. And our text for this morning is found in verses 26 to 34. Mark chapter 4. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the air, then the full grain in the air. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we ask now that you would speak to us and minister to every heart here, or that we might be changed and transformed. Lord, as we have sung, the cry of our heart is that you might show us Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that in his name. Amen. Herbert George Wells, better known as H.G. Wells, was a prolific writer in the 20th century, but is best remembered as the father of science fiction. His most notable works include The Time Machine, The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, just among a few. But he had a particular interest in the future. And his writings had a great influence on our outlook of what that time would be like. What I was struck by was his optimism for the future. Before World War II, in his work, A Short History of the World, he conveys this. He says, quote, Can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imaginations, that it will achieve unity and peace? The children of our blood and lives will live in a world made more splendid and lovely than any palace or garden that we know, going on from strength to strength, in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. What man has done, just meaning so far, the little triumphs of his present state form but the prelude to the things that man has got to do, end quote. Post-World War I, there was a sense of this optimism that we had turned the chapter on this history of conflict and that we can look to a time of peace Wells had a dream of a better world, and his words reflected that sort of optimism in the society of his day. Things were changing. Humanity was progressing. Technology was advancing, and they believed the possibility of a utopia could be realized. 
But as you know, World War II happened. And sometime after the war, H.G. Wells wrote something strikingly different than what he had wrote just years prior. And he says this, quote, the cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of deliberate and organized torture, mental torment. Man's depravity has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is played out. There was such a change in tone within just these last few years. And it's sad because that would be actually the last thing he wrote before he died. That within that short span of time, he was resigned that this dream of a better world eluded him. And his experiences reflect something that we have seen for some time. Just a cursory reading of history makes it clear that every society has a dream of a better world. It's impossible to read the history of America without recognizing that succeeding generations have looked at where they've been, look at where they are, and they look forward to where they hope to be. And what is true throughout the history of the world is true throughout the history of the Bible. The biblical record shows that we once lived in a utopia, that our first parents lived in a perfect world that God had created, and in his own words, he declared was good. But because of sin, paradise was lost, and the history of humanity is a longing for this sort of paradise to be regained. And we see this all the way through from Genesis through the book of Revelation to the end of all things. You have the people of God look back at what has been, looking around to what is, and looking forward to what will be. And many times in the face of oppression and tyranny and persecution with nothing to go on except the word of God itself and what it says. And the prophets spoke to the people in every generation telling them of the promises of God, assuring them of his covenant, and affirming the future fulfillment of their hopes for a better world. The prophet Isaiah prophesied of such hope. Isaiah chapter 9, as we normally read during Christmas time, speaks to this prophetic day. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says this, A child is born. And to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah and the prophets of old would speak of that which would be fulfilled, though they didn't know how. Nevertheless, this was the hope that they held on to. And this was the hope that their people held on to as well. And so generations came and went. 
And parents would have told their children, and they would have told theirs, that though we are oppressed, and although we seem to be going nowhere, that though things look hopeless, there is hope. They would be reminded that God has made a promise to us. Now, one day he will send one greater than David, and he will be the Christ. And he will be from the tribe of Judah, and he will be a son of David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And justice and righteousness and peace will prevail on the earth under his rule. See, they dreamed of a better world to come. And after 400 years of silence from God, and the waiting, and the toiling, and the dreaming, in steps Jesus who comes to Galilee, and he makes this bold statement that that time of a better world is now. He says the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in this gospel message. The long-awaited king had come with the promised kingdom to rule and reign over his people, that all things would finally be made right, and the Lord would restore what was broken, and Jesus would reconcile to himself all things. And all Israel needed to do was to simply repent and believe. But they refused. Inexplicably, the Jews reject Christ as their king, and they refuse his kingdom. See, because their expectations of the Messiah was that of a political Messiah. They thought this Christ would lead a revolution and overthrow Rome, that he would come and deliver them from their oppression and then to usher them into this political kingdom. And Jesus revealed that that was not what he came to do. He came to set up, first and foremost, a spiritual kingdom. To establish this rule over the hearts of those who believe. That they might experience the new birth and be saved into this kingdom where God reigns over their lives. See, this kingdom he came to bring was internal. This kingdom was invisible. This kingdom was spiritual. And as a priority, it is first establishing this kingdom that Jesus will then set up that kingdom which they sought after. That physical, earthly, and literal kingdom visibly manifest upon this earth as described in Isaiah's prophecy. But the Lord made it clear that one cannot enter that earthly kingdom if you do not first enter the spiritual kingdom of God and to be under his rule over your life. And it makes sense that Jesus can't be king in that kingdom that they longed for if he could not be king in your life. But the people, 
and didn't understand this. They were blinded by their sin. They were willful in their unbelief, and their hearts were hardened. And so they reject Christ. In fact, at this point in Mark's gospel of chapter 4, there was increasing opposition toward Jesus to the extent that the religious leaders accused our Lord of doing his works in the power of Satan. And consequently, because of the massive rejection that Jesus now faces, there is a great shift and change in the ministry of Christ as he turns his attention from the Jews to now the Gentiles. And so all of this is happening. And in light of it, the disciples who are with him find themselves asking, what happens to the kingdom? What do we make of the promises of God? What now of this hope of a better world to come? Are all these things fleeting? With opposition and unbelief and this wide-scale rejection of Christ, from outward appearances, things aren't looking that great. And it's against this backdrop, the Lord gives these two parables, these two stories in response to their questions and concerns about the kingdom. And from these two parables, he reveals three characteristics of the kingdom of God during this age. If you're taking notes, the first that we learn here about the kingdom of God is that it begins humbly. The kingdom of God begins humbly. By all appearances, this kingdom, which Jesus proclaims is the fulfillment of God's promise, seems so ordinary. It seems far-fetched that this kingdom that Jesus says is the one spoken of in the Old Testament, because it looks so insignificant. It was unassuming. It was humble in its origins. And so you understand why people had a hard time believing this. But Jesus doesn't back down. He, in fact, affirms that the kingdom of God does begin humbly in this respect. Notice the terms for how Jesus likens the kingdom in these two parables. Verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And then down to verse 30, and he said... With what can we compare the kingdom of God? In verse 31, it is like a grain of mustard seed. Jesus speaks of the kingdom in such mundane, ordinary, unassuming terms. And you're almost taken aback by it. Because it's kind of like Jesus is saying, this kingdom of God that's spoken of by the prophets of old, the one that you've been anticipating for centuries, where the righteous rule of the sovereign one will be upon the earth, where the Messiah will sit upon the throne of David, and he will rule with an iron scepter, and there will be everlasting peace and righteousness and justice and blessing will prevail for all. Let me tell you about this glorious and mighty and great kingdom of God. It's like a tiny mustard seed. That's exactly what it feels like. 
is something's off there. Because if anything, the kingdom of God should be likened to something grand and glorious. You would think of something like mountain peaks, crimson, sunsets. But Jesus likens it to seas in both parables. Actually, Jesus specifies it's like the mustard seed, which he describes in verse 31 is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Now, if you do a fact check, you would find the mustard seed is not actually the smallest seed on the earth. The orchid seed, for instance, is smaller than the mustard seed. But why Jesus uses this expression is because the mustard seed was proverbial for smallness in Palestine. So if you were to play the game catchphrase and someone says mustard seed, you reply small. It was synonymous with smallness. And Jesus would use this phrase in this way on several occasions. And here he's using it to describe what the kingdom of God is like. It is small and ordinary and humble by outward appearances. When you think of the history of Christianity, this is so true. All these preconceived notions of the king and of the kingdom and what is coming would be like were broken. And this was one aspect of the secrets of the kingdom of God, what Jesus speaks of. The kingdom has come in the person and words and the works of Jesus, but this is not obvious. Because though Jesus comes as the king, he was a veiled king. Up to this point, for three decades, Jesus walked among his people unnoticed, in obscurity, hidden, and yet in plain sight. And now it's as if the light of his identity only begins to break forth to the surface. But for many people, this was difficult to accept because there was nothing impressive about Jesus. When you think of a king, you'd expect a king to have a crown. He doesn't have one. You'd expect a king to have a palace. He doesn't live in one. You'd expect the king to come in glory, and yet he comes in humility. By outward appearances, here was the son of a carpenter who lived in obscurity in Nazareth, who was uneducated and had no sort of social status at all, and all of a sudden he's now making claims to be the Christ, the anointed one, the one prophesied of, who was here to fulfill God's promise and to usher in God's very rule upon the world. And though he was performing miracles and teaching with authority to validate that he was who he says he is, instead of universal allegiance, they're seeing rejection from the masses. His own family thinks he's crazy. The religious leaders thought he was demonic. And then you look at his followers. You'd expect the king to have a significant entourage. But what does he have? In this group, you have a fisherman, a, fisherman, a tax collector, and a band of misfits. They were Galileans. They were deemed low class, 
rural. They were uneducated people. They were the commoners of the day. There's nothing impressive about this group. There are no titles prefixed to their names. They weren't the scholars. They weren't the social elites. They weren't even religious. Do you remember what the religious leaders said they were? Sinners. You would never find Jesus walking down the street with these disciples and have people say, oh, there goes the king of the universe. No way. Only faith that God gives as a gift allows us to recognize the Son of God in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But everything surrounding Jesus and the kingdom that he comes with is so unassuming. J.C. Ryle's he describes Christianity in this way as well, and it's a longer quote, but I appreciate what he writes. He says, quote, the beginnings of the gospel were exceedingly small. It was a religion which seemed at first so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live. Its first founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a malefactor on the cross. Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left the world. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were most of them unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a pretty tributary province of the vast empire of Rome. Its first movements brought down on its friends persecution from all quarters. It was a sect everywhere spoken against they are simple historical facts which no one can deny. If there was a religion which was a little grain of seed as its beginning, that religion was the gospel. And yet here's the thing. This is, in fact, the characteristic of the kingdom. But moreover, this is the paradox of the gospel. This is the scandal of the incarnation. This is Christianity disguised in such common terms. Someone once said that God, whom Jesus introduces, was not intended to be kept at celestial arm's length. Jesus doesn't tell us how high and lofty God is. Notice he tells us how very near and present he is, and his kingdom is with him. The planting, the harvesting, the seeding expressions are then fitting because they serve as mundane clues to the nature and plan of God, and it speaks to who he is. God will teach us that the kingdom of God begins with himself, a small group of followers, and a message. And it seems, again, from all appearances that this is insignificant. There's nothing special about it that would indicate that this is the kingdom of God, but this is what our Lord will build the kingdom upon, these humble means. And all the while, the Lord wants us to know that though humble, appearances can be deceiving. Because not all things are as they appear. 
Because we're told, secondly, something else about the kingdom of God in that it grows supernaturally. Look at verses 27 to 28. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. A picture is given of a man who sowed seeds. And in those days, you'd see a farmer with a bag over himself, and he'd reach in and take handfuls and scattering seeds throughout. You couldn't see it growing. It doesn't look like anything is coming about. It doesn't look like, like, like there's much impact upon the ground. But then all of a sudden, and mysteriously, it yields a harvest. And that's the simple story here. Now, this parable should immediately bring to mind an earlier parable that Jesus told. And it's the parable of the sower. Because here in the story is, again, a sower. There's seed that's sown and a harvest. But the emphasis is this parable, and this parable is different. Rather than focus on the soils of the heart and the response to the gospel, the accent in this parable is not on what we do, but on what God does. What's emphasized in this text is the sovereignty of God in establishing the kingdom of God on earth and in the hearts of people through our efforts, but also in spite of our efforts. Jesus draws our attention to what happens concerning the harvest when the seeds are sown. Notice the word in verse 28, by itself. And that's a single word in the Greek language, and it's the word automates. And it means what it sounds like. It's where we get the word automatic. He's saying the seed grows automatically. There is independent activity going on here. There's self-sufficiency in the seed. Growth just happens. And what is the contribution of the man in this parable? We discover he sleeps. That's all he does. And he does it well because it says that he sleeps and rises night and day. Night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Jesus goes out of his way to emphasize the insignificance of this man. This man has nothing to do with the harvest. Here a man sleeps, and then one day he gets up and says, Hey, I have a harvest. How did it get here? I, I don't know, right? but it's here. Hey, that's the picture. This man doesn't cause the growth. He doesn't contribute to the growth. He doesn't even understand the growth. It grows whether he is asleep or out in the fields. It grows if he's an unexperienced farmer or an experienced one. Growth will happen. Just how this growth takes place, the farmer doesn't know. It's a great mystery. But you note the process that is indicated in verse 28. It says, from blade to ear to full grain in the ear. He's talking about the stages of growth that gradually take place. And what we learn is that the stages of growth is so gradual is that it's imperceptible. 
You try to indicate the precise moment when the blade develops into the ear or the ear produces a full kernel. It can't be done. It is unknowable to the farmer. And even with our advanced understanding to the scientists, to the chemists, to the most learned agricultural specialists, he himself does not know how the seed is able to transform soil into a living plant cell. Jesus says, that's how the kingdom of God is like. The dead are made alive. The blind can see. Sinners are made into saints. How? We don't know. Because the wind blows where it wills. God gives life as he chooses, and he will work as he sees fit. See, I can come up here, and I can teach you about regeneration, but we don't know how being born again happens in the life of an individual. But we simply know it happens, that God is doing it, that he is at work that the Lord will accomplish his will and purposes concerning the kingdom of God. He will grow this kingdom through us and also in spite of us. But here's the qualification, right, that, that needs to be made. The qualification isn't to say that we have no part to play because God uses means. The man in this parable, he does sow seed. And we are called to do the same. We are to pray for unbelievers. We are to reach the lost. We are to proclaim the gospel to them. In short, we are to sow seed. But at the end of the day, do we generate any spiritual life in anyone? No. The soil bears fruit automatis, automatically, by itself. The success of the gospel and the kingdom doesn't depend on you or me, but upon God, who is sovereign to save whom he will save. The kingdom grows apart from us. And often, that you didn't share the gospel with, but you should have. You ever see someone come to faith despite your fumbling the gospel? or your botched answers to their questions? You ever see someone come to faith when your ungodliness and your lack of love and your sin becomes a stumbling block to the very gospel that you try to proclaim to them? Yet God will continue to bring those to faith that through his grace, he does so through you but also in spite of you, in spite of your fear of man, in spite of your lack of love for the lost, in spite of your inability to share the gospel, the seed produces and the kingdom will expand. This is how Martin Luther understood his role in the Great Reformation as well. When he was asked what he did to bring about the Reformation, this is what he said, Quote, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, 
I did nothing. And then while I slept, the word worked. But I did nothing. The word did it all. He conveys what's being taught here. So let me ask you, are you discouraged by the weakness of your efforts for the cause of the kingdom? Do you feel like I'm a failure evangelistically, that I have no heart for the lost? I'm often too scared. And when you do preach the gospel, it doesn't seem to be effective. Maybe this is the case for some of you. You have a child who's unresponsive to your efforts to show them Christ and point them to the Lord. Maybe there's a family member who is cold to the gospel and nothing you seem to do works in softening their hearts and it seems like instead that you're driving them further away. Maybe there are those who you have prayed for and you've befriended and you've had conversations about the gospel with them and they seem to be so hardened to it. Maybe you feel discouraged and overwhelmed by your own weaknesses. This is a word for you from the Lord. That the kingdom of God will proceed relentlessly in spite of your efforts and your weaknesses and failures. This isn't to say, forget about witnessing or to have a let go and let God attitude because that's unbiblical theology. The teaching here is not to have you relinquish your responsibility is not to call you away to faithfulness, is not to discourage you from obedience to sharing the gospel with those in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, to our neighbors. Instead, this is meant to encourage us to persevere. It is to give us faith in the Lord and not in ourselves. It's to grow in us a greater confidence in what God is doing and that he will work through us and in spite of us and our weaknesses. It is to stir in us good works to keep on evangelizing, to keep on praying, to keep on ministering to others in the name of Christ. It's an encouragement here that what we do and when we do these things will not be wasted. The seed of the gospel the spread of the reign of God in this world and in the hearts and the lives of men and women will grow as the kingdom expands. And it will continue, whether by God's grace, through us or in spite of us. The Lord, he continues, and he gives a second truth as it relates to the growth of the kingdom and he tells a second parable here. And look at verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up, becomes larger than all the garden plants, 
and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Our Lord gives another picture here. And it's of a mustard seed that would grow up and become larger than all the other garden plants in the field. A mustard tree can grow to as high as 10 to 15 feet. But from the outset, it seems so unlikely that this tiny mustard seed would grow to be as tall as it is. And yet, it happens. Jesus is teaching on another aspect of this truth of growth. That the kingdom will start off almost unnoticeably small, but it will be unhindered in its growth. Our Lord is telling us the growth of the kingdom cannot be thwarted. The growth of the kingdom cannot be frustrated. The growth of the kingdom cannot be hindered. There is a broader encouragement here in light of this. And one much more broad than the specific one for for us to simply sow seeds faithfully as God will work through us and in spite of us. There's a greater application here. See, at this time, in the ministry of Christ, it, it looks as though very few people are receiving the gospel. Jesus is being rejected by the masses. He's opposed by the religious leaders. The people were living under the tyranny of Roman rule. And all the while, there's a spiritual battle going on against the kingdom of God. And so the progress of the kingdom looked very bleak. But Jesus is saying here to the disciples, don't lose heart. The kingdom will start off very small but will eventually grow exponentially larger. It grows because there is life in the seed. It grows because it has all the power of God within it. It grows through the grace and means that God gives, and nothing can stop it from growing. The work of the gospel is often unseen, and yet we are assured by our Lord, that it is growing. The real work of the kingdom of God and of the church in the world is not always obvious, but is invisible and is imperceptible and nevertheless powerful as God will have his way and he will ensure that what he plans and intends will come to pass. I was reflecting again on what an encouragement that this is in our world. We don't have to look too far and we see that the forces of Satan in the world and unbelievers are against the church. And sin has gained a strong foothold in this country we live in. And it has affected our way of life. It has tainted our convictions. It has undermined our holiness. Evil and sin 
has inevitably weakened the church. And even as I say this, one influential church in the city that was once known to be faithful to the gospel two weeks ago recently declared that they are now open and affirming. See, that's the state of the church. That is the trajectory that we see on the horizon. Believers are compromising truth. And we lack a godly influence upon this world. There is constant opposition against us. And over time, we grow weary. And we grow disheartened. And we're discouraged. But throughout it all, we must remember that though it is not always obvious outwardly, God is building his kingdom. We look around us and we see that things are messed up. And it seems like we're making little difference in this world. We must not forget that the kingdom is growing. This is an encouragement to us. And I think how much more so for our Christian brothers and sisters in the Muslim world today. For those who have no opportunity to gather as we do now. For those who are persecuted. Who are opposed. Who are being slaughtered even at this very moment for the sake of Christ. What a word this ought to be for them. Some of whom can only identify themselves in public places as believers by the way that they shake their hands. What a word for total strangers meeting and shaking hands for the first time, and they can say, brother and sister, God is at work. He is faithful. And his kingdom will come. What a word they desperately need. It is a word that gives us hope that though things appear humbly, the kingdom will continue to grow supernaturally. Not only will the kingdom of God start off small and grow very large, but it will also be a blessing. And that's our, that's our last point. We learn here that the kingdom of God will also bless abundantly. Look at verse 32. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is saying that the kingdom of God will be a blessing to the rest of the world. A bird's nest on a tree carries the idea of protection and safety and refuge. And this picture is not uncommon in the Bible. We find this picture given to us in Daniel chapter 4. And in Daniel 4 verse 10, the prophecy goes something like this. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And its height was great. And the tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. 
Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. In Daniel 4, this is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, is king of the Babylonian Empire. And he has Daniel interpret this dream for him. And when Daniel interprets the king's dream, he says that the king is the tree. And the king has become great and strong, whose dominion has spread throughout the world. And under Nebuchadnezzar, the nations of the known world at that time prospered under his reign. As the animals prospered in the shade of the tree, so did the nations under the king's rule. Jesus picks up on this language in Mark chapter 4 and says, this is what the kingdom of God will be like. It will be even greater than the great kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of heaven would grow from tiny beginnings to a great tree and would ultimately provide shelter and protection and benefit to the entire world. It will be a refuge to the nations. If you think about this, is, this is an amazing thought that the kingdom of God started from a small band of disciples spreading the gospel in the midst of great hostility and persecution, and the kingdom will grow into this. In no way, shape, or form was their faith the predominant one against the other religions of that time, and yet it continued to grow. And as time went on, as the gospel went forth, and more and more people came to believe Christ, the kingdom grew. And it expanded until people from all over the world has come to rest in the blessings of the kingdom. History records for us that by the beginning of the third century, there were thriving churches in every province of the vast Roman Empire. Like birds flocking to a mighty tree, the nations were coming to Christ to find shade and rest. That from Europe, Christians carried the gospel to the Americas, then to Asia, and then to Africa, and then to Australia, fulfilling the word of God. And this day, believers are going out to the last missionary frontiers, and they're no longer going to nations. They're going to unreached people groups of the nations, and they're going with the gospel. And they're carrying the light of Jesus Christ into these dark places of communism, into these Muslim countries who oppose the church. The kingdom of God blesses abundantly and will continue to do so as God will grow his kingdom to maturity. At the beginning of our time, I set the context for these parables as the disciples were asking about the kingdom in light of the rejection that they had encountered. 
And what God is explaining to them is that everything is happening according to what God has planned. That's what these two parables are all about. They teach us what's going to happen with the kingdom. That the kingdom of God, though it will start off small, will grow supernaturally. And not only that, it will bless It will bless those from around the world that they may come and be under its shade and blessing. We know that when Christ returns, he will establish his earthly rule on earth. And as believers, we are awaiting for that day. And in the meantime, the Lord is growing his kingdom here. But here's the thing. As the disciples are hearing Jesus teach on the nature of the kingdom, it still doesn't answer their question of why do the people still reject Christ as their king and refuse his kingdom over them. You find these disciples discouraged by what they see and and they can't understand why it's happening like this. And yet what Jesus reveals here and over the course of his ministry is that all of this is happening according to plan. The people are rejecting him, but nothing's changed in regards to the kingdom growing and being established because the rejection of the people is part of God's sovereign will. How? Why must they reject him? Because if the people don't reject him, there would be no cross. See, God the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, so that those who believe in him will not perish but instead have eternal life. This was his mission at this time. He wasn't going to bring the kingdom in just yet. He came not to be served, but to serve and instead give his life a ransom for many. I thought about this, and it's fitting that there is such a connection here to what today represents. And I don't know if you know, but today is a significant day in the life of the church. As some of you know, this Sunday marks the beginning of what Christians have historically recognized as Holy Week or Jesus' Passion Week. This was the beginning of the end of Jesus' life, the final week of our Lord's life as he marches toward Calvary. And it is the most sacred time of year for us as believers as we reflect on what it cost our Lord to pay for our sin. But today marks the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem. That over 2,000 years ago on this Palm Sunday, as it's called, Jesus Christ entered the holy city, the city of David. And there was such anticipation among the people that their political Messiah had come. And they sought to anoint him as the king of their own making. And if you remember, they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. But they weren't asking to be saved spiritually. They were asking to be saved politically. 
And they sought to make him their leader against Rome, who was their enemy. But on this day, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and he breaks all their conceptions of who he was and what he came to do. Because Jesus entered the holy city not on a white horse or a chariot, but he comes humbly on a donkey's colt. Because he comes not to reign, he comes to die. He comes not as sovereign, he comes as savior. He comes not to conquer Rome. He comes to be defeated, as it were, by receiving the wrath of God. See, on this Palm Sunday, it happened to be the Passover week, where tens of thousands of Passover lambs would be slain for sin. And it would be on this day that Jesus comes to prepare himself and to offer himself up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To take away the sins of all those who would believe throughout the history of the world. Our Lord, yes, he came as king, but he was a humble king. One who knew no sin but was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes on human flesh so that he might make atonement for sin to die and to resurrect on our behalf so that we might be forgiven, that we might be made right with God, that we might be reconciled to him. And this day, he is calling for those who have not found rest and shade in Christ and in his kingdom to do so. That you would repent of your sin. That you would trust in him as Lord and Savior. See, this is why our Lord comes. And my encouragement to us is that this week we would prepare our hearts to meet Jesus in a special way this Good Friday, this Easter Sunday. Let's set our focus on Jesus Christ these next few days as we go from here and grow in greater affections for him as a result of his love and his great sacrifice for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures that lives and breathes and moves and has its way with us. And that is the experience that we've had this morning. Well, we're thankful for the truth that the one who tells of these stories is the great king. And he is the harvester of our souls. 
And we know that upon his return, that he will put a sickle on that day of judgment and he will reap a harvest of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Lord, we, we look forward to that day. You tell us, Lord, that although there is no shelter from him and his judgment, there is shelter in him. That we need not know him as our judge, but we can know him as our savior, as our friend, and as our king. Lord, we thank you that we need not run from him in fear if we would only run to him in faith. Lord, we thank you for this great promise and truth. And Lord, for those who don't know you just yet, may you draw them to yourself. Lord, would you soften hearts? Would they repent of their sin? Would you give them eyes to see, Lord, for who you are? that you are our king. Lord, we desire that you would be king over the hearts and lives of each and every person here. And we look forward to that day, Lord, when you will return. You will set up your kingdom upon this earth. And you will sit as a greater David. And Lord, you will rule with the iron scepter and justice and righteousness and peace will prevail as we look in this world and in lord as our hearts grow burdened by what we see may it grow in us a greater longing for that day that you will come you will make things right and lord we know this because your kingdom is still growing and so lord we thank you for the promise of your word we pray these things in jesus name